0: Waldy and Bendy. Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast. They could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's adventures in art. I'm Valdemar Januszczak, art critic of the Sunday Times, but my friends just call me Waldy. And I'm joined on this podcast, as always, by a man who towers over art history like a colossus. He does many things, and he does all of them brilliantly. So does that make me feel small? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. I'm just the Robin to his Batman. I'm the pedestal and he's the David. I'm even the Bendor Grosvenor to his Philip Mould, which is confusing because he's Bendor Grosvenor too. Aren't you, Bendy? Sometimes.
1: Thank you, Weldy. You're so kind. And uh, can I, can I start the week with a plug? you often um, take the Michael and say I'm on the TV all the time. But actually, this coming week, I will be on the TV. A new series of Britain's Lost Masterpieces starts Monday, 1st of February, 9pm on BBC4.
0: Yeah, go on and give it a plug.
1: Oh, it's really good. Watch it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. It's got Bendy in it and no Philip Mould. So yes, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. Um, identity issues aside, Bendy, uh, we've got a jammed podcast today. We've got a big, big Big artist to evaluate and give the thumbs up to or the thumbs down to in ooh, ooh, ooh who's that artist We're continuing our determined search for the worst film about an artist ever made with a Jackson Pollock movie directed by Ed Harris, starring Ed Harris and with dirty T-shirts by Ed Harris. Uh, and on the wall I'm going Polish, bendy's going Italian and we're also hoping on top of all that, for a bit of an auction exclusive aren't we bendy
1: well last week we mentioned the uh, the Botticelli uh, portrait of a young man which is coming up for sale at Sotheby's I chose it for my on the wall before it sells for a huge price and it's the auction uh, by coincidence is on right now so we might be able to tune in at some point during the podcast and and see what it makes I think um, it looks like uh, last time I saw your bank balance that you you could probably drop in a few bids
0: that's exciting so we're going to be following the live auction if we can as it pops up during this podcast that's what you're saying yeah
1: technology permitting we'll give it a go
0: brilliant i hope all that works um anyway as if that wasn't enough for one podcast uh, we've also got something else something delightful bed deep now on my twitter feed i've been doing this thing about homeschooling so i'm suggesting artistic things for kids to do in the lockdown and it's been really good fun so this week what should pop up on my twitter feed but a miracle of art history called Sophie, Sophie the Wonder Baby. Now she's only two years old but she can already recognize all the artists that are shown to her by her mum. You don't believe me? Well here's a clip of Sophie in action.
2: Ta-da! Matisse! Dolly! that that's also in my book. Digger. Money. Sazam. Mumps. Pollock. Starry that that's also in my book. (laughs)
0: she's so Mm. delightful i could eat her she's so sweet and wonderful so listeners what you have to imagine is that there's a little girl just two years old has a beautiful cheeky little face she's being shown various paintings by famous artists and she's getting them all right absolutely all right astonishing don't you think bendy
1: without a word of a lie she can recognize more artists than i can (laughs) Um, I think it's really impressive and I, I saw on another video that she's even she can even spot a William Dobson so that's pretty good.
0: She's so wonderful. And everybody adores Sophie the Art Baby so much so that she's now got her own account, her own account on Twitter and on Instagram. So uh, if you want a dose of undiluted art historical joy, you go on Instagram or Twitter and you find Art Baby Sophie. That's her handle, Art Baby Sophie. Uh, You can also go to the podcast pages at zczfilms.com, which is where we have all the information about everything in this podcast, photos, links to this and that. And there, too, you can see Sophie being brilliant um, at zczfilms.com. Now, as it happens, she hasn't done the artist we're talking about next. Uh, But I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Who's Who's that that artist? artist? Well, Bendy, he was born in 1471 in Nuremberg. He died in 1528. And he is, as I'm sure you'll agree, Bendy, a biggie. So, who is he?
1: Albrecht Dürer, I think I have pronounced it properly.
0: Very good. Yes, very good. Brought up the German in you. Albrecht Dürer, indeed. The reason we're doing him is because... Uh, there's supposed to be a big show of Jura appearing at the National Gallery right now, next week basically it's supposed to open, but because of Covid it's not happening. So we're doing something uh, useful for the nation, we're sort of imagining the presence of our Albre Jura instead, instead of going to the National Gallery you can listen to this podcast. Bendy what do you think of him? I mean I, I, I'll reserve my judgment for a moment, I just want to hear from you first.
1: Well, uh, I know it's 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 rather unfashionable nowadays when art history is supposed to be uh, a serious and learned subject where we're all focusing on the, the theoretical um, underpinnings of the art that we're looking at. But, you know, the reason I love Dürer absolutely um, above so many other artists is because there are so many moments when you can stand in front of a Dürer, painting or a drawing, and you just you lose yourself in, in the craft of it, in the making of it, in the how on earth earth did he do that moment um is one of those artists where uh, I can stand in front of um, something like for example uh, that meticulously beautiful drawing of a wing just a wing of a bird I think it's a European roller bird Uh, this is a drawing in the Albertina in Vienna and I can stand in front of that and my mind cannot comprehend that I'm looking at a drawing Uh, it's so beautifully made that my mind is tricked into thinking there is actually a bird there and that happens with, a, with very few artists um, another one is Holbein for example but but th- that 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 is why I love uh, Jira so much
0: that's gorgeous yes the watercolor of the roller um I filmed it last year actually there's a big show in the Albertina yes I mean he, he takes your breath away uh, he's up there for me I mean right up there I, I would I would have him well probably at the top actually I mean above Leonardo even um just because of, of, of his range of talents. So, okay, you could do what you've just described, which is take bits of nature and draw them with astonishing detail, I mean, breathtaking detail, so convincingly real. But then look at all the other things he did, right? He basically invented the artistic self-portrait, this idea of the artist presenting themselves in a role. So he did these great self-portraits in the um, 1490s where he took on a role, and the most famous of them, is like a Jesus Christ, He's looking at you with long hair and, and exactly Christ-like presence, staring straight at you. And kind of Salvador Mundi, amazing image. If you think of all the artists now who are making self-portraits in which they present themselves as people, and it's all to do with identity. You know, Durer did that first. If you look about his around his altarpieces, he, quite often he's in them. I mean, he's in that famous one in the National Art Gallery in Prague, the Madonna of the Rosary, where he's at the back, you know, holding up a sign, and he's in the Landauer altarpiece, and the sign that he's holding up actually says, you know, this is done by Albrecht Dürer, and there he is, a little self-portrait of him standing there. So that injection of himself, infiltration of his own art by himself, and the ego issues that are associated with that, I mean, that's, that's yet another thing that he did, and, and he did it first. Amazing, amazing. I love all that.
1: I think that's the reason perhaps you and I like him so much. He was a raving egomaniac, wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, depicting yourself as Christ was, was quite a bold move, even in about 1500. But if you could paint like Jura, then then why wouldn't you? Um, and I love that little sign you mentioned that he's holding up in the Madonna of the, of the Rosary Garden, uh, because the sign says... This took me five months to make. And there he is (laughs) proudly showing off his work. Um, The important point about that that last picture with the sign where he's so uh, proud of what he's done, of course, is that he painted it in Venice when he uh, was aspiring to take on the Venetians at their own game. And I think it's very interesting you said you'd rank him above Leonardo. I think I would too. And one of the reasons I, I think he's so great is that he is the complete Renaissance artist, isn't he? He's one of the very, very few cases where you can combine the Northern Renaissance and that 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 wonderful skill of painting so beautifully in oil paint, of course, pioneered by the the likes of Jan van Eyck up in the north of Europe in the late 15th century. And um, that meticulous attention to detail he can do, of course, trained in his father's uh, workshop as a goldsmith, um, and painting in oil on sometimes uh, small panels, of rather idiosyncratic forms. And then he combines that when he comes to Venice. He makes two trips to Venice with, you know, Venetian color and Italian expansiveness and above all, an Italian sense of perspective. And uh, he's able to um, combine the best of both worlds. And and that is quite a, quite a rarity in art history.
0: Mm. So you mentioned the, the journey to Venice, uh, t- two journeys to Venice that he made this is actually what this show that's at the National Gallery, uh, or supposed to be at the National Gallery, is about. It's it's called Dürer's Travels, and it's about the journeys he made, because amongst the many things in which he was a pioneer was this idea of travel. I mean, he was the first European artist who really got around Europe. I mean, later on, we were were used to French artists popping up in Rome, or Flemish artists going to even as far away as the Austro-Hungarian court in Prague, etc. But Dürer was the one that did that first. He went all the way to Antwerp he went all the way across Germany he went to to find Holbein's home in Basel he was this peripatetic artist who went to places to learn what everybody was doing there he went to Colmar to see how Martin Schongauer worked so that is yet another thing that he was absolutely a leading light in but we've got this far into this discussion we haven't mentioned his Prince Bendy I mean this is a guy that basically invented the print business as we know it. I mean, I, I collect old master prints and, you know, I've got a couple of Duras, but um, they're nowhere wow. near the top type of Dura because people would, would print and print, print, print for years afterwards. By the time I, you know, they get to the price that I could afford, they have been well overprinted. But I mean, he he pioneered that whole market. He, he found a way round the idea that you only make money by, for example, painting elaborate altarpieces by installing a big print shop in his house so he had a big press put in he did his own work he brought his own editions he controlled his own output yeah. always thinking ahead and he was really into technology into the latest technology at the times so he was an artist whose technical mind was also something that hadn't been seen before but pretty much everywhere you look with Jura, you're in the presence of a pioneer Um, And as for the actual prints, oh, my God, you know, I mean, they are some of the most amazing, desirable things in in all of art, in my opinion.
1: Yes, it's quite fitting that an artist who himself uh, travelled extensively across Europe was then able to disseminate his ideas so uh, comprehensively throughout the continent and indeed around the world. Because at the turn of the 16th century, there were Mughal artists in India who were making their own versions of Jura's compositions based on, on woodcuts and engravings that had traveled that far, isn't that amazing? But what I find extraordinary about his uh, contribution to the world of printing was that when he started, of course, uh, it was predominantly in woodblock and he would have done his drawing. Uh, Sometimes it seems he had people to help him carve the woodblock, but he also seems to have been able to carve the woodblock himself, which of course would fit with his training as a goldsmith. Now that is quite something because you've got to do it, you've got to cut out the wood in reverse, haven't you? you? One tiny error and the whole block is gone. And I've never really got my head, I have to say, around um, the print market where you get these first, second, third and fourth states. But but is it, would the prints that you have on your wall be taken from the same block that Dura or his craftsman carved all that time ago?
0: Yes, absolutely. But um, there's a famous book, there's a catalogue of all the editions, all the states that there are of Dura. It's by a guy called Joseph Medder. and this book basically is, full of information about this well, what happens with wood is that it wears out right mm-hmm. so when you um print a lot from one block by the time you get to sort of 100 prints the sort of edge of the block has chipped out a bit or something yeah. and you can tell that in the printing so quite a lot of dura um woodcuts in particular there's a black line around it sort of rectangle shape you know holding the print in place but by the time you get to the hundredth, two hundredth printing of it a bit of that's broken off so the line's broken and right. within the print itself, the line gets broken. And because the, it's been printed so much, you know the impressions are not as fine. So they're more blurry. There are all these things that go on. And I mean, I'm not an expert on, on that at all, but, the, but various people are. Um, and the, you know this can make thousands of pounds worth difference in, in, in the auction prices. And if you've got a MEDA A or B, as opposed to a C or a G, which are all A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, that, that's a my fortune.
1: But the point is, so the, the, the print that you have on your wall is made from the block that Dura probably touched and carved himself. I mean, that, that's a wonderful connection to one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived, isn't it?
0: It is, and they are wonderful things, Bendy. Honestly, they are so wonderful. I mean, I, I set out. I did. A, I started a collection of doing his Madonnas because he did a whole load of Madonnas. I mean, this was the great era of, of Marian um, focus on in art. There's a lot of a lot of Virgin Marys, uh, and he he would put her in the landscape usually. And in his early days when he was just doing the woodcuts, he did that beautiful one that's called the Madonna of the Hares, mm. And she's sitting there with the baby Jesus and there's these beautiful little hairs scuttling around. And, and then if you look at corners of his art, there's always like something like a dragonfly or there might be a frog or the nature always plays this presence. Um, and there's um, another print that was actually made after him by an artist called Sadalar, an image called the Madonna of the Meadows, and that's even full of more animals. So you've got the Virgin Mary and the baby, and then you've got a fox, you've got an owl in a tree stump, as you have in Hieronymus Bosch. So it's, it's this glorious descriptive art. And, and the thing with Jura is to look in the background and to look in the details, because you just find all this stuff going on. So exciting. Um, and even in my slightly blurry later editions, you can still see all that.
1: Do you think, though, that despite all the brilliance and wonderfulness we've just been discussing about Dura himself, that his place in art history is, is sometimes a little bit uncertain? Well, it is. You and I think he sort of sits at the, the top of the triangle, but he's often seen as a sort of a bit of an outlier. And I was I was thinking about this the other day uh, when I was re-watching, as I do quite often, uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization series. And it's so interesting that in there, Clark is so down on durers Germanness, uh, And he says that his drawings and his paintings are brilliantly crafted, but they lack inner life and that they are um, the fierceness of, say, for example, the, the, the faces of his sitters in his portraits uh, reflect a sort of German destructive mindset. And I, I'm not sure in Western art history we've really got over that.
0: Mm. You see, I think that there's a problem in Western art history with separating the northern renaissance from the southern renaissance and i think a lot of it is just basically to do with with the comforts and, and the sunshine of a southern renaissance i mean if you look at all these english art historians in particular they all love to go to the south of france <laughs> or to italy to lounge around in rome in their panama hats and their white linen suits you know to, to eat beautiful meals of spaghetti al vongole to drink prosecco and the best barolo Um, And they got to Germany, and it was colder, it was grimmer, it wasn't as flamboyant, the sun didn't do that thing in the afternoon that it does in the Italian Campania. And it's just a holiday thing, I tell you. I mean, it's a prejudice against the Northern Renaissance that runs all the way through Protestant art history. And that's the other side of it, you see. There's there's a kind of resentment about what the Germans were able to achieve, what the Flemish were able to achieve. Um, And I think that's all changing. Let's face it, if you look at art now, there's far more Dura in art today than there is any Leonardo or Michelangelo for that matter I mean the whole idea of the self-portraits the whole idea of multiples and prints the whole faith in a new technology the whole idea of the artist as this kind of superhero in his own work or her own work Dürer invented all that I mean he's pioneering in so many ways I mean you have to be pretty stupid I think not to be able to appreciate him today
1: yeah well uh, here's to more Dürer And I plead guilty to wafting around Italy, looking at lovely sights and the lovely sun (laughs) in my Panama hat. And, you know, I've never been to Nuremberg. And I really, really want to go and see where Jura was
0: born. Oh, yeah, you should. Well, you know, his house is a museum and Mm -hmm. um, it's been kept... Well, at least it looks as if it's been kept more or less as, as he left it. So you can go around; and you can see his printing press, and you can see, and it's it's a beautiful little thing on a corner of a square. It's very atmospheric. It's got that slightly Germanic Gothic feel to it. The whole city, but um, what a fascinating place, and what a fascinating time in art, you know. And, and you they don't even get me going on the, the Nuremberg goldsmiths. You know, his father was a a goldsmith. You know, the things that they could do with gold in those days. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast who hasn't done that kind of fall in love with uh, G- the German Gothic trail, you know, do Dura, do Grunewald, and do uh, all, all those wonderful artists of the German Renaissance, because it's uh, really worth it. Um, anyway, that's Dürer. And hopefully Sophie will be dealing with him soon. Uh, we've just had a go at dealing with him. Um, and that show at the National Gallery, I think that's going to be coming along and opening sometime in the spring. And I must say, I can't wait. Uh, in the meantime, Bendy, Um, As we sit and twiddle our thumbs, this podcast has a job to do, and it's a big one. The Wardy and Bendy Awards. Yes, the Wardy and Bendy Awards are going to be continuing the shortlist of the worst films about an artist ever made. Uh, But uh, I see Bendy waving at me at the other end of this uh, podcast and the Zoom link. I think there's something going on in the auction. What's happening in the auction with the Botticelli, Bendy?
1: Well, we are one lot of whale baldies. So, uh, get ready to raise your hand, raise your paddle. The estimate uh, on the catalogue it says um, refer to department, uh, which is code for it's so expensive, mortal people can't possibly think to afford it. So, don't ask how much it is. Um, but it's been reported in the press that the upper estimate is eighty million dollars. So, uh, yeah. we'll be expecting the bidding probably to start around forty odd million dollars um yeah. that's always the most nervous moment for the auctioneer because he'll be scouting around the room looking for that first bid uh, and people are always slightly reluctant to make that first bid so what do you think it's going to make
0: well, i don't know so it's new york isn't it the auction's in new york um there's tons of money out there there's tons of money and people seem to have a lot of time on their hands at the moment and not, they don't quite know what to do with it um so i reckon it's gonna go high 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 80 seems A modest amount to me, if you compare it with some of the prices that have been flung about recently. I'm, I don't know, I'm I'm tempted to go a bit higher, you know, 100 million maybe, I think, maybe, because it just feels like an important picture. What about you? What do you reckon?
1: Well, that I would, unless I would be out of that level. uh, So it wouldn't be be coming to Scotland. Um, Bendy,
0: this is me you're talking to. Yeah, I, I know better than to believe you when you say that. We all know that Bendy's rolling in it up there in its castle in Scotland. I bet you've got another line on at the moment, which we can't see because you're on the Zoom, right? I bet I can't see you've got another line. And you're on that line right now to New York. I'm about to pop in on the Botticelli, aren't you?
1: The only thing I've got at the moment is four jumpers because I'm so mean with the heating and it's freezing up here in the attic. Um, oh. But, uh, its I mean, there's never really been a Botticelli like this on the market. Oddly enough, the, the auction record for Botticelli is, I say, only in inverted commas, only about $10 million dollars. Um, but there's never really been anything quite like this. And, of course, the most expensive uh, painting ever sold is an old master. Leonardo da Vinci made $450 million some years ago, the Salvatore Mundi. Yeah.
0: And now Ooh, there here it is. Here there it is. is. I so... can see It's coming up, isn't it?
2: And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, we now move on to the star of the sale, Sandro Botticelli's masterpiece, The Young Man Holding a Randal, one of the most significant portraits of any period ever to appear at auction, and a defining work at the Florentine Renaissance. This fabulous work here, The Portrait of Young Man, holding around all the fantastic work, showing on the screens for you here, the tempera on panel. How are we going to start the bidding here at $70 million
1: now, $70 Oh, it started at $70 million. that's quite, that's bold. Oh, there's already a bid coming in on the phone at $72.
2: 74000000 million now. Oh, it's definitely going to sell then. $76 million now. 76 million dollars, 78 million
1: dollars. God, Bell. isn't it amazing you how so much money can just be
0: spent so quickly? And, uh, well, there's two <laughs> people on there, isn't there? Is it two going against each other? And against you, Lillian, on the oh, top Stalling at 78. Still with Alex Bell in New York. And he's, he's trying to milk it, isn't he? Head yeah. of the European Old Master Penance Department. There he is. <laughs> he's on the stuck, <laughs> stuck on 78 million in Saudi Arabia. Go on, Arabia. Wildy, Now's your
1: moment. 80 million. You're
0: in, Wildy, Well done. <laughs> That's all he you press see your bidding there, Bendy. So why would that take so long? Why was it stuck on 78 for so long?
2: I don't know.
1: Maybe they're just trying to out-psych the other bidder or...
2: And again, a selling bid at $80 million. Still with you, Lilia. And against you, Alex in New York at eighteen million million.
0: Well, it's going to be closer, isn't it, to the yes, no ATS, Lilia? Worth mentioning,
1: with premium, of course, we're looking at probably in excess of $100 million already. Yeah,
0: yeah. Once you add all the fees.
2: London, New York... Course of 80 million dollars. Here again, we have the transatlantic bidding. See,
0: it's a great spectator sport auctions, isn't it? I mean, it's ridiculously good fun trying to watch all these people spend 80 million dollars.
2: It's a lot of consideration going on at 80 million dollars. Alex, what do we
1: have? 80 million dollars. Even at our bidding level, Wally, when we with the poultry amounts, we'll have heard the auctioneer on the end of the phone. The, the chat they try and you to elicit yeah. another bit out of you. Just one more, sir. Yeah. What a good-looking Hello. fellow you are. <laughs> this would look very fine in <laughs> my fireplace. Well,
2: Last chance. You want to say one more? Give me a sign, Alex.
1: It ain't coming. No.
2: Only at Sotheby's for the Botticelli. $80 million.
0: If- oh, he's banged it. That's it. Well done, Bid Bidder number 45, $80 million. <laughs> well, that exciting, sort of. I thought it would go for more, actually. Um...
1: Now is the time for us to put an online crowdfunder up, Weldy. Uh, who will help us pay for this uh, $100 yeah. million
0: dollar painting? It's a good idea, though. It's good. We're going to go to more auctions. I like that. That's a good thing to be doing. So mm. there we are. I've just been in New York, folks. Um, and live on the Waldie and Bendy podcast, you've just heard the Botticelli going for $80 million dollars, which as Bendy says, um add on the bits and pieces as well over a hundred million. Yeah, there you go. Some lucky person out there spent far too much money. Um but that's the modern art world for you. So Back to the real story here, Bendy. Um, The Waldie and Bendy Awards. We've been distracted, but we shouldn't have been because the Waldie and Bendy Awards are here to do something very, very important. We're here to decide on what is the worst film about an artist ever made. Of course, there's an awful lot of contenders. We've been going through all these films week by week, different film every time. And this week, where we've been looking at Pollock, which as you can tell from the title is all about Jackson Pollock. It stars Ed Harris. It's directed by Ed Harris. Uh, it came out in the year two thousand as a kind of millennium treat. Um, what do you think of it, Bendy?
1: Well, you know, Waldy. Uh, normally, whenever I think of you, uh, such is the, the depth of our friendship and our shared love of art that you you pop into my head like a like a vision of angelic purity. You're sitting in my mind up there on a cloud, lit lit by a beautiful celestial light, and you smile beatifically at me because you always cheer me up. And there's little there's little beauty floating around your head, and and I always smile back at you. And we have such deep affection for each other.
0: Bendy, stop lying. Just tell us what you think about the film. Come on, I
1: always think such happy <laughs> thoughts. But last night, <laughs> uh, about halfway through this film, the vision fleetingly <laughs> broke down. <laughs> Thunderclouds rolled across my mind. I reached for my Scottish broadsword and, and started uh, screaming at you, never again. I'll never again let, <laughs> let you uh, take away two hours of my life by obliging me to watch uh, such a terrible film and we're we
0: looking for the worst film about an artist ever made yes, but I, I can't, we can't have good films can we I
1: can't take any more of it I'm I'm going on strike I'm not going to do this anymore we are going to amend the competition to the worst film ever made and possibly also the best film about an artist ever made because I'm, I'm not going to sit through any more terrible ones at least when we started with Frida it was uh, bad in a sort of enjoyable way it was so bad it was good And as we later learned, of course, the film was really only bad because Harvey Weinstein messed it up. But I'm not sure there's many excuses for uh, Pollock, the film. And uh, before I end this little rant, Maldi, um, tread very carefully, uh, because if you come out and actually say you enjoyed this film, um, I'm going to start questioning your judgment as never before.
0: (laughs) Well, Benji, I enjoyed this film. I'll tell you what I did do, and that's I did enjoy it more than the first time I saw it. And I saw it when it came out, and and I remember thinking at the time, this is the reason I put it on this shortlist, Though I remember thinking at the time, this is absolutely the worst, most tedious, most egomaniacal film I've ever seen, with um you know Ed Harris spending his whole time admiring his own cheekbones and hours and hours spent doing nothing in the film.
1: Jackson Pollock goes to the shops. <laughs>
0: <Goes> <laughs> there was a the scene shops. five minutes. Jackson Pollock <laughs> goes to the shops. No, but he was looking at the cornflakes. Come on. <laughs> I found it a more interesting experience, second time around. I, I, I suppose because Actually, because of the films we've watched so far, you know, they've all been bad, right? And they're all bad in the same way, which is that they try and encapsulate the life of an artist in, in some kind of biopic mode, which usually involves focusing on their sex life and all the trauma and darkness that goes with being an artist. So we know that's part of the territory now, don't we? That seems to be what everybody focuses on. But in this film, the one thing that I, I ended up thinking, well, you know, that's not bad. And that was. Ed Harris's ability to paint a Pollock. He'd obviously, because he's a method actor, right? So he built himself a studio. He practiced painting like Pollock. He sharpened his cheekbones to look more like Pollock. He must have had millions of people making his T-shirts dirty for him so that they were as dirty as Pollock. So he did all that because that's what method actors do. And he did also learn to paint like Pollock. Now, see, I have one advantage over you, which is that I've tried to do that, too. In my series on American art, um, I tried to paint like Pollock as well using Sean Greenow. Sean and I in Bolton, we set up a studio. We even did the thing where you take a photograph through a pane of glass to the picture being made on top, which is exactly what happens in the Pollock film. Um And it's harder than you think, you know, it's harder than you think to drip interestingly and to drip with a rhythm. And I think he did get that, you know, when he was moving around the canvas, there was a kind of swaying jazzy rhythm to the way he did it. That was a lot like the, the Helmut Newton original film that's based on. So I quite liked that. Um, It made it about art and and the making of art in in a reasonably effective way. But of course the, I mean, the, the really terrible thing about it is that he was such a terrible person And the story is so sad, particularly for his wife, Lee Krasner, who was treated like dirt all the way through. Um, Rather a good performance, I think, actually, by Marcia Gay Harden, which I think she she won an Oscar for that. So um, it's a terrible film because it's grindingly, darkly obvious that Ed Harris really does think he brings Jackson Pollock to life, and this was really what Jackson Pollock was like. Um, And that sticks with you like like concrete to your feet all the way through the film. But um, there are moments when he pulls it off, I think, a bit. Um, I'm just trying to be nice about it because you've been so nasty about it.
1: Hang on, I haven't got started yet. All
0: right, go on, go on. What what more do you want to add?
1: Well, perhaps we should should focus on some of the pluses about the film. Um, You know, he does a good job of portraying Pollock I think physically I thought the best bits of the film were actually when the painting occurs and I really wanted to see more of the painting because um, they did do that quite effectively and I think they did that far better than any um, art film we've seen yet Um, the film throughout had a certain sort of you know rather gritty authenticity um, and obviously they spent a lot of time working out the studio setting and all that uh, kind of stuff Um, but I just I thought the script was terrible. So many of these films fall down on the script, don't they? No matter how good the acting is. And you're right that um, the portrayal of Lee Krasner was was pretty good, I thought. And, and I wouldn't take that away. What I found disappointing about it uh, was um, that it asked us to to buy into the late 20th century narrative of American art and art history, which is this, this parade of, of flawed, but really, you know, brilliant, white, old, mainly old blokes. Uh, were were all that there was and they were it uh, no, no matter how terrible the person they were and it doesn't matter if they were so drunk that they killed people um, in the car like poor old uh, Edith Metzger as told here in the film that you know we should forgive them and that, that, that hey you know they were a great painter uh, in that context, I thought it did a, a disservice to both Jackson Pollock um, in his art I mean there was a there was a key scene where Pollock is shown uh, creating or having the first inspiration for the drip paintings. Mm-hmm. it's shown as uh, Ed Harris just sort of um, accidentally dripping some paint on the floor <laughs> and then going yeah. aha now maybe that did uh, once happen to Jackson Pollock mm-hmm. but there's so much there's so much more to the drip paintings and what they're trying to represent and how they came about than that of course of accidental course. dripping of the paint and then I think more significantly I thought Lee Krasner was just not shown uh, at all well I mean it was it was a sympathetic human portrayal but She's a fascinating artist. She's she's a great. Well, no. Artist, to be fair, she...
0: bendy To be fair, right. Well, look. First of all, I agree with you about the drip thing. I mean, that was just one of those devices that you get in films trying to get you around around a corner. We now know that that Pollock started drip painting for a couple of really significant reasons. One was uh, when he was younger, he was in the desert watching how the Navajo, the Native Americans, made art, and they made art by dripping sand different coloured sand onto the floor. They made sand pictures. And that act of sort of dripping sand from the hand down was a major influence on him, which he admitted to. And then there was um, a female artist called Janet Sabel, who was a part-time housewife painter. um, And she was making drip paintings, literally drip paintings of the same ilk, which are on show in New York in 1944, 1945. Pollock did go and see them. Um, It has been said quite boldly and bluntly that he stole the technique from her. So I think these things definitely go into it. Um, that's undoubtedly true. But what you're talking about, you see, is the problem that all these films have. I mean, they just, no one will do a film about an artist. I mean, look, the myth we have of, of all these artists, look at Michelangelo last week. You now we're doing Lust for Life coming up, the same with Van Gogh and Gogam. You know, if you're not cutting your ear off um, or, or being tortured by the Pope, or, or, you know, having disastrous affairs with women. It's as if the art is never enough. You've also got to have all this other stuff piled on. And that is the thing. It's that's, that's what turns it into a Hollywood movie, isn't it? And it always gets in the way. Of course it always gets in the way, but it's definitely part of the territory. It is the main reason, I think, why every time we talk about one of these films about a great artist, now we always dislike them. Um,
1: I, I must say, I liked Agony and Ecstasy last week, but I think I liked it more because it focused on a painting. It was a story about a painting. And as I think you've, you've just tried to say, artist biopics very rarely work because at the end of the day, artists uh, don't often have the kind of exciting life from, you know, youth to old age to death that a biopic generally deserves. And the act of painting is so difficult to film. I was struck actually by, um, I was looking up more about Lee Krasner, who I'm, I'm now fascinated by, and there was an interview with her and someone said, um, I, I'm trying to get into your head. Uh, what goes through your mind when you begin a painting? And uh, she just sort of paused and said, well, you just take a deep breath and hope for the best. Now, (laughs) that's true, but that's impossible to put on a film, isn't it? And that's why I think you you end up with these biopics that are so full of of sort of nonsense it, and gaff. It
0: wouldn't get you very far in, in a plot line, would it? Mm. I mean, the Lee Krasner had a marvellous show at the Barbican Gallery in London last year, beginning of last year. See, what you have to remember about her is that she was completely oppressed um, emotionally and, and in terms of her talent by Pollock. Mm. So, so she didn't work much during the time she was with him. But the only thing by her that features in this Pollock film is that she made a round table, a kind of mosaic out of a cartwheel, uh, which there's a scene where he shows her the cartwheel and says, uh, oh, you might do something with that. And then later on, you see them eating off it in the house because she's actually finished the cartwheel. But basically her art is, is completely ignored here. Uh, And it really wasn't till he died that she came into her own as an artist. And that's the terrible thing about her story is that half of her career was spent basically being a handmaiden to Pollock. And only later was she allowed to become this fabulous artist who who was always there, you know, who could have been there all the time. But this is another breed, the breed of the artist's wife. I mean, I've even met a few. They really do exist. I mean, they're talented, wonderful people who have the misfortune to meet some dreadful, egotistical, um, barrel-chested artist who <laughs> dominates them, abuses them, and steals their time and their talent, basically, <laughs> and their youth. Um, and it, it's a story that keeps being repeated in art. And Pollock was amongst the worst possible people anybody could have ended up with, let's face it. I mean, he had so many different types of problems.
1: Well, any any Hollywood producer listening, uh, we, I think we say, please make a biopic of Lee Krasner and do more justice to her art. There was another work of hers shown in the Pollock film, which is at the beginning, which is her youthful self-portrait, which is today in Mm. the Jewish Museum. Now, I think that's one of the best uh, self-portraits painted in the first half of the 20th century in America. It's a really beautiful work. But it was represented in this film... By, as we've come to expect now, one of those really atrociously painted copies. And uh, it's the first painting that Lee Krasner in the film shows to Jackson Pollock, and he looks at it and, and then decides that she is a great painter, when of course the viewer is just looking at the painting mm. and laughing.
0: Well, her self portraits were in the Barbican show as well. No, look, she was fantastic. I mean, it was a beautiful show, really interesting. She had a marvelous career, but it, it all happened after the events that we, we're watching here. And, um, the, the film prides itself on its authenticity. You know, a lot of it was filmed in Springs in their house. Um, it, the, the village store where he where he agonizes over the cornflakes. That's a real village store. it's there. I've been in it. And Ed Harris spent all this time becoming Jackson Pollock. I mean, rather amazingly, there's a sort of break in the time sequence where, um, you see him five years later from the rest of the action and he's been you know, twice as fat and he's grown a beard. And that's, you know, he really did do that. He took time off and, and, and ate lots of cake and, and became the fat <laughs> Jackson Pollock. You know, that's going all the way for your art, isn't it? There you are. Um, uh, what can I say? I mean, it, it's good that I tortured you. I mean, you're having far too good a time up there in Scotland. Um, the, we absolutely need to give you more terrible films to watch. And it's a question of coming up with ones that can even hurt you more, I think, than... Uh, than Pollock with uh, Ed Harris. So i have got to put my mind to that and come up with something really nasty for you next week, just to cheer you up a little bit more, Bendy. Uh, but fortunately, that's all over. You don't have to think about that anymore because we're moving on. We're going to the next bit of the podcast. We are going to On The Wall. On The Wall. Ah, that's... Beautiful music by Mozart, the jingle for On the Wall, which signals the pleasures ahead for us. Ah, Bendy, what have you chosen in this glorious moment, the post-Pollock pleasures of On the Wall?
1: Well, I've decided that our on-the-wall galleries are are growing quite impressively well, it, notwithstanding the fact that I now have to hand back that beautiful Botticelli portrait to its owner, who's just bought it for all that money in New York. Um, but such is our gallery that I need more space. And I've decided to hang my choice of paintings in the Pazzi Chapel which is in Florence and of course is the work of the wonderful Filippo Brunelleschi designed in about the 1420s but only completed in the 1440s 50s and even perhaps up to the 1460s and this is a a beautiful wonderful pure piece of renaissance architecture which is attached to the church of Santa Croce in Florence you approach it from outside there's a beautiful portico of six corinthian columns and then inside it is a A wonderful, pure space. It's so relaxing. It's that lovely uh, grey Pietra Serena stone and whitewashed walls. At the base of the dome, there's a a series of of round windows through which the light uh, filters in very calmly. And there's another chapel ahead of you with a dome at the top, which has a, a blue painted ceiling. And the whole place, it's inspired by Brunelleschi's earlier work the old sacristy in San Lorenzo which, which is the the Medici tomb of course that's perhaps a more famous place for tourists in Florence to go but the Patsy chapel it doesn't have the clutter of the old sacristy and that is why it's such a, a calming space it 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 has that effect on you when you go in that that really first rate architecture can have which is it completely transforms your mood and i always feel so relaxed in there um, and on the bare walls i will hang all the treasures from our previous on the walls
0: hmm. Bendy, I'm confused here, right? You own this vast stretch of Scotland. I mean, there's about half of Scotland, isn't it? And and you've got loads of land up there. You've got all that territory. And yet, instead of just taking the Patsy Chapel and putting it in your garden, you're going to take all your stuff and put it inside the Patsy Chapel in Florence. I mean, isn't that going against the spirit and the grain of on the wall?
1: No, I'm taking the Patsy Chapel here. It's coming, it's being disassembled and uh, being brought up in a COVID safe way to be reassembled, um, attached to our house here, which is not actually my house, it's my wife's house. Um, and I'll put the paintings in there,
0: yes. It is coming to Scotland, good. Um, yes, it's been years year since I've been in there. I do remember it, and I do know it, of course. I went on my very first art history trip when I was at university, we went to Florence, and I remember the Patsy Chapel. And there was some controversy about whether it was Brunelleschi or not, it wasn't there at the time. But it's, yes, it's absolutely what you say. It's one of those very calm, beautiful, grey, still Renaissance spaces that just make you feel intelligent and make you feel as if the light is just perfectly set at the right levels, all those sort of grey and beautiful whites. Um, I don't remember it that well. I'll tell you what I do remember about it, right? And that is the fact that for some reason, I thought it was a square building with a dome, a beautiful little square building attached to the the Basilica of Santa Croce, which is where Michelangelo is buried, of course, Santa Croce. So that's what you go there for. Then you pop out and you go into the cloister and you find the um, Patsy Chapel. But it's not a square building. It's rectangular, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. um, the architectural cleverness here is in taking a a rectangle and making it feel like a square. And it's all done with these little architectural conceits that architects love. Um, There's a barrel vaults and things that go sideways but it doesn't feel like it um, and there's this big square center to it and a lovely cupola or dome with the um, insignia of the Patsy so yeah it's it's you know architects love all that stuff about how they sculpt space and how they can make space feel and work in different ways and most times you go into a place and you don't feel it but there are some places where you do and this is definitely one of them I mean and I remember that aspect of it that it's, it's this kind of wonderful sculpture sculpted space and of course the Patsy family now, now you're talking. See, so when you get onto the subject of the actual patsies who commissioned it, that's right up my street because you know the patsy conspiracy was this great moment. Um, it was um, it was involved, of course, with um, Sixtus the Fourth, so the Sistine Chapel, and it's that all that's all built into it. Sistine Chapel, the murders, the deaths, all that dark patsy violence. It's all there as an alternative to the space itself,
1: and all resolved, of course. Uh, by none other than Botticelli, who went on a sort of peace mission to Rome to do a painting for the Pope in the Sistine Chapel. When I'm in the Patsy Chapel, admiring my art, do you know what I will have for my lunch? Uh,
0: You'll have uh, Filetto di Manzo.
1: Ah, is that? I'm going to have Poposo, which is Uh, is a, a beef stew. Have you come across this?
0: No, no. The the manzo steak, um, that's very soft. It's it's sort of tender and uh, it melts in your mouth, basically.
1: Ah, well, poposo, it also melts in your mouth. But poposo is said to have been eaten by the craftsman who made uh, Brunelleschi's dome in the cathedral in Florence. And you cook it in a terracotta pot. And they are said, when they made all the terracotta tile for the roof of the dome, they cooked it in the pot in the kiln at the same time as the tiles and then when they were all up on the scaffold putting the tiles on um, they would winch up these pots of Peposo and it is said to have been favored by Brunelleschi himself so I will have that to complete the Brunelleschi vibe
0: so you see you asked me earlier why the northern renaissance gets overlooked and and the southern renaissance doesn't you see you've just proved exactly why you're talking stew um and the delicious food of italy which you're going to wash down with a bottle of barolo you just don't get that in nuremberg you know and that's the thing now you certainly don't get it where i'm going with my on the wall which is to my home nation poland because to trump your patsy chapel i've come up with uh sculpture by a brilliant Polish constructivist called Katarzyna Kobrow. And she's an artist who was totally forgotten about for most of the 20th century, um, rediscovered more recently in the surge of interest in women artists. So everybody started talking about her. Um, And it was realized that Poland in the 1920s in the town of Łódź, which is also where there's a great film school, in the town of Watch there was this constructivist moment when, out of nowhere seemingly, a group of Polish modernists turned up and started to make these really exciting space-age art, which was really a parallel to what was going on in Russia at the time. So Russian suprematism, the art of Kazimierz Malevich, who was Polish as well, originally, ethnically. Um, and it was to do with finding an art for the modern world. It's that whole idea of... You know, if you're going into the 20th century, you can't just keep producing the same old stuff that you did in the 19th century, or in your case, the 18th century. You know, you've got to think ahead and be progressive. So Katarzyna Kobro came up with this idea of spatial compositions. And it's a sculpture which it's, I mean, it's a bit like a Mondrian in 3D. So it's got lots of different planes of yellow, black, red made out of bent metal and arranged in in almost a configuration that feels like an interior design or something. It could almost be like, I don't know, a space-age kitchen or something. So it's got that sense of furniture about it. But what it's trying to do is to involve all the space in the sculpture. So these planes of colour are eating into the surroundings, if you like, and trying to activate everything. So it's a bit like what Anthony Gormley was talking about when he was on the podcast the other week. This idea that a sculpture is the space around it as well as the thing itself, um, and so I wanted to mention katharina Cobro because I think she is this brilliant modernist presence in the middle of this Central European moment. I love this piece, and if you go to the Museum of Modern Art in which you'll, you'll find other work by her, so um, that gives me joy. And also, I'd like to just hear hear you pronounce katharina Cobro, and then tell us what you think of her. Um, Cobro. Yeah, and her first name. Uh, okay, 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 Katazina Bendy Katarzyna Cobro.
1: I think there's a problem with the Wi Fi, this end I'm sure <laughs> I'm saying you it right. It's just not coming through very well, your end. <laughs> Vendor Grosvenor. Uh, yeah. Anyway, what do you think? Well it looks like you, you, you have this one, Wally. I would not fight you for it. I'm, I, but I did look up her, some of her work. I, you know what I'm like. I'm a bit reactionary and old-fashioned. I liked her figurative stuff um, very much indeed. And I'm sure if I saw this in the flesh, I'm I might um, be inspired by it, in in a Polish way. But uh, she's obviously um, a pioneering character, and I'm all in favour of those.
0: Basically, uh, all yours, yeah, but Tell us some more about your reaction to it, Bendy.
1: Well, I'm. I, I don't have much of a reaction to it. That's the pro- that's the problem. It's it's a lovely uh, assemblage of uh, colored shapes. Um, and I can't I can't say much more about it than that. And I can't do this kind of you you can talk so beautifully about art of of any kind and you you always have uh, something to say about <laughs> about anything. I don't. To get me talking about an artwork to make any sense at all, it's it's got to have real oomph and a real narrative and real presence. Um, and I, I just can't get, I can't get to grips with the theory that underpin this kind of art. And that's very much my failing and not the arts.
0: Listeners, uh, between you and me, I've set myself a mission to turn Bendor Grosvenor into someone who feels comfortable in the, uh, in the world of modernism and progressive arts. Um, and sometimes I make a bit of headway uh, today, I haven't made any headway at all. <laughs> so I think we better leave it at that. Um, Katarzyna Cobro, brilliant Polish supremacist and constructivist. She's going to be on my wall, but she's probably not going to be on Bendy's. But uh, that's it from me, I think. I'm just going to say goodbye.
1: And cheerio from me.
0: Just one more thing Sophie's still here. She hasn't finished with her list of artists that she likes and identifies. So uh, before we get to the great theme tune, here's the art baby, Sophie, with a few more goody names.
2: Fanoi Famiya Angela William Dobson Waltie and Bendy, and Bendy.